Now, like I said, we're going to jump. Uh, actually, I don't think I said this. We're going to jump back to verse number one. Get a little bit of a running start because it is the last time we'll touch this book uh, in uh, in Sunday school hour. I'm certain we'll use it and reference it in other uh, uh, studies. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 13 is the final chapter of the book, and uh, we're going to look at verse number th- uh, one on through. And I mentioned the illustration last week. I won't belabor the point, but uh, the author is kind of finishing up, and it's almost, in my estimation, um, just uh, the way I interpret it. Uh, not even interpret it. The way that I kind of. Uh, uh, I guess kind of illustrate it. In my, my brain, if I had to compare it to something else, this is just how I do it. There's just one interpretation of the text, but the way that I kind of liken it is it's this last minute kind of checklist. Hey, make sure you got this, make sure you got this, make sure you got this. Um, it ceases to be that toward the end. We're going to get to some, some pretty um, uh, recognizable closing statements, but we're going to get through the last part of the list. We already went through the first part. We'll get through the last part, and then we'll see some closing statements and some significance there. So uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse number one says, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Uh, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them that suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Uh, And then he jumps to marriage. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your, and then he jumps off of marriage and into your lifestyle and living. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who, spake, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ, and that's the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Now, we read briefly from from verse number 10, and uh, we we expounded on a truth that's not the point of the text, okay? And I want to be careful with that. Um, There's a truth you can draw out of the text that isn't really the point. The point the author is making, uh, we'll look at this morning, but we did talk about this side truth. He is, look at verse number 10. He says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve, present tense, the tabernacle. And so, so the truth that we kind of extrapolated out is that, hey, it may very well, we, we may very well come to the conclusion that the book of Hebrews was written before uh, the fall of the temple, which would allow for the authorship of Paul. It would also allow for the authorship of other authors as well. So we said that, but we didn't really take time and look at what the text is actually intending to teach us, okay? That's what we might could learn from it if we, we take a look and say, it seems like the tabernacle or the temple is still in existence at this time, and I think that'd be a reasonable conclusion to make. But the point he's making has nothing to do with the tabernacle or the fall or Titus coming and destroying it. It has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with, look at it again. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. Here's what he just said. We have an altar. We have a meal. We have a place where we make sacrifices that those who serve and sacrifice still in the temple, they have no right to eat thereof. Um, and you can, you can look at this and interpret this to mean a couple of things. I think most likely it's talking about the Lord's Supper, um, though that's not exclusively the only way that this can be looked at and understood. Uh, he could just be using some kind of an idea that, well, we have an altar that we eat of. The altar we eat of could be, you know, Christianity and relationship with Jesus, but ultimately, that's the, the Lord's Supper is a picture of all of that, that we're communing with him. And so I don't think one is going to be wrong or one might be more right than the other. But the idea is, here's the whole point he's making, is that the Jews who have stayed in the sacrificial system and worship have no claim 
to the relationship that Jesus has given us to God the Father. That's the whole truth that's present in front of us. Simply put, those who remain over there have no claim with Jesus. And that is unfortunate, but it is an important distinction. It means that while they were Jews and elected for a very specific Old Testament purpose, they are not saved. And you can read Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10 and come to the same exact conclusion that my prayer and hope for Israel is that they might be saved, though they were chosen for a very specific God-ordained purpose to bring both the word of God in the Old Testament and the Messiah through the lineage of Judah uh, and the lineage of David. They, they had a purpose, but those who have remained there have no claim in Jesus. And therefore, if you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. And this is a very important distinction. And I do believe that God has a plan for Israel. We see some of that in the book of Revelation. I believe that God desires for all of Israel to be saved, just like I believe he desires for all of Ecuador to be saved and all of Zambia to be saved and all of Bakersfield and all of Arvin to be saved. But the fact of the matter is what he's saying, the book of Hebrews is written to what audience, Gentiles or Jews? It's written to Jews. And he's telling the Jews, it's very important for you to understand that those who remain and make sacrifice of the tabernacle have no claim to eat of the altar wherewith Jesus has brought us to eat and to commune and to fellowship. And that's always what eating means. So you think about like uh, they continued in, you know, the apostles' doctrine and breaking of bread. That's the Lord's Supper. It's communion. It's fellowship one with another, but it's also fellowship with him. And the author here is saying, hey, if they've stayed there and they're continuing to make their sacrifice and continuing to rely upon the day of atonement and the blood of lambs and the blood of goats and the offering of the priest to be saved, they have no claim to the relationship Jesus has purchased for us. Now, there's a great way to illustrate this, and Jesus did it for us. So go back to Luke chapter 5. I told you we were going to head there. Luke chapter number 5 holds a relatively, as I mentioned a second ago, uh, what might be understood as obscure parable. But he's saying what the author of Hebrews has said. In Luke chapter number 5, verse number 36 is where we'll start. Uh, Jesus is be being questioned by the Pharisees about his new teaching about these new doctrines. Because we know that Jesus, through the book of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus is giving us a New Testament in his blood. He is giving us a new teaching um, that, uh, that is based upon him and his priesthood, not the priesthood of the prophets. Now, he is the, the foundation upon which all of that was taught. But look what he says when asked by the Pharisees about his new teaching. Look at verse 36. He spake also a parable unto them. Now, if you were with Brother Hunter in his Wednesday night studies on the book of uh, Mark, he talked about a lot of what a parable is for. A parable is to give a truth. Uh, sometimes that truth is to be made more obvious through the parable. Sometimes the parable actually serves to shield the truth from those who cannot receive it. And that's definitely the case here. Notice what he says. He spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old. So let me just... Uh, you're going to have to kind of trust me for a second, which I know is kind of a dangerous thing, but follow this for just a second. If you disagree with me at the end of it, I don't think you will, but just let me interpret some of this for you. This new garment is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is saying that no one takes the new garment, the gospel, and puts it into an old law. No one takes the gospel of Jesus and marries it into the Jewish way of thinking and system. It doesn't work. And here's why. Keep reading. Uh, we'll go to the beginning. It says, And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old. If otherwise, they then both, the, the new maketh a rent. So the new is not going to fit into the old. When you buy a new pair of shoes, you don't try to cut the new pair of shoes up and patch the sole of the old pair of shoes. The new pair replaces the old pair, right? 
It fulfills the responsibility of what the old pair was supposed to do that it can no longer do. And honestly, we know from the book of Hebrews, it could never do. It, the new pair replaces the old pair. You don't cut the sole off the new pair of shoes and glue it to the old pair of shoes. You're going to ruin both pairs of shoes. Okay, very clear. So he says, then both the new maketh a rent and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. So you're going to break them both. You're going you're gonna to cut the sole off of that shoe and put it on the new shoe, and it's not going to fit. It's not meant to fit. It's meant to replace. Now, if you think that one is a little more obscure than the next illustration he's going to use. The next one becomes very, very clear. Look at verse 37. No man putteth new wine, that would be the gospel, into old bottles. Now, here's why, and let me give you a little bit of background on this. So the, the natural process of fermentation, um, and this is not a message on whether or not you should, Christians should drink alcohol. There was alcohol in the Old Testament and in the New Testament used for very specific purposes, not to get drunk, water purification. Go back and listen to the sermons. We have them all over the place. But understand this. You put grape juice without its preservatives in our current condition. You go out to the fields here, grab grapes, crush them, put them in a bottle. They will ferment. They're, they're just scientifically fact. And when fermentation happens, it expands. Okay. That's how it works. So what they would do in the, old, in, the, in the Bible days is they would take a new skin and they would put new grape juice into that skin, that wine skin or a bottle in this particular instance, and they'd put it in and this new supple leather can expand with it. So as you fill it to capacity, there's no more room in there. How in the world is it not going to burst the, the skin? Well, because it's supple. It's new. It will grow with the fermentation. Now, once this skin has been expanded, you can't put new wine back in because now you're going to fill it to its full capacity. And now that wine, now there's more wine in that skin. And when that wine ferments, it'll burst. You can't put new wine in old bottles. Got it? That's the illustration he's using. Let's go back and see it. And no man putteth new wine, the gospel, into old bottles. Else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled and the bottles shall perish. It doesn't work. You can't cut the sole off a shoe and put it on an old one. You can't take new wine and put it in an old, stretched out, crusty, dry, unflexible wineskin because it will ruin, it'll both burst the wine or burst the bottle and the wine will go on the floor and the bottle is ruined as well. Look at verse 38. But new wine must be put into new bottles and both are preserved. This is important. The new wine is obviously the gospel message the New Testament in Jesus' blood. And he says, I can't put that into the old system or it'll ruin them both, which is exactly the struggle of the first century Christians, right? You've got, and the best example, and I've used this before, is James, the brother of Jesus in Jerusalem, pastoring this church, trying to lead it. Anybody know how James dies? He goes to the temple to pray. It's kind of fitting. It's kind of working. Judeo-Christianity kind of exists. And then ultimately, the Jews are like, this doesn't fit here. This won't work. And they cast him off the pinnacle. Like, if you can go to Jerusalem today, there's, there's a, uh, the, the Temple Mount. It's just the, the, the blocks upon which the temple was built. But the temple goes all the way up, and there's a pinnacle. You can actually see this particular stone from which they threw James. It actually has the, the writing on it in, uh, from, from antiquity. And they threw James off because it doesn't fit in this bottle. Okay? Now, keep reading. But, oh, well, let me say this. But the new wine must be put in new bottles, and both are preserved. When the new wine, the gospel, is put into a new people who, who aren't stuck in the old ways that say, no, this is the gospel, I want to be saved. They love it, they appreciate the new wine, but notice the people who are stuck on the old wine. Notice what they say. No man, verse 39, no man having drunk old wine straightway desireth new. 
for he saith, the old is better. And this is not, you know, wine connoisseur that the older it is, the better it gets. No, no, no. These people who've been drinking the old wine, their skins are stretched to the capacity. They loved what the old system did for them. Well, what did the Old Testament do for the Jews? It gave them a pecking order. It made them better than other people. It gave them high seats and broadened phylacteries, and it made them something of significance, which is why when Jesus came and his authority affronted their authority, the primary question they kept asking is not, do you have the power to do this, but why do you have the authority to do this? Because his authority was trumping their authority, and they said, we don't want your new wine. The old wine is better. The old way is better. And you listen to any Jew of antiquity, you read anything from maybe Josephus of the first century or of any rabbi today, they're all going to say, oh, no, no, no. This one's better. But all this system serves to do is subjugate and elevate. It just makes some better than others and others worse than than the ones who are better. And the ones who have drunk the old wine, they do not want the new wine because the old wine is better. Listen, and this goes back to what he's saying in Hebrews. They that sacrifice of the tabernacle have no claim to eat of the altar wherewith you and I eat. Uh, And we are, think about this. this I think this is interesting. In Acts chapter 2, verse 13, you know what the Jews said of the, uh, the, uh, the, pro- the apostles, forgive me, the apostles who were filled with the Holy Ghost? Here's what they said. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. These guys, they're, they're, they're drinking something we're not drinking. You're right. We have something they didn't have. It's the mystery of the Gentiles. It's, it's prophesied throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Isn't it funny to me that when you go back and you find the prophecies of Gentiles, and it's like, and you will inherit the Gentiles. They're like, yeah, we're going to take their stuff. That's how they interpreted all the prophecies of the Gentiles, right? That we're going to rule them. And God's like, no, I was going to bring them into the family. Like, no, 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 we're going to take their stuff. And God's like, no, I was going to bring them into the family. Like, okay, so we're going to take their stuff? No, that's not the whole point. The point of your election was to bring Abraham's blessing to the entire world, not so that you could subjugate the entire world and that be a blessing to you. It's a complete fundamental misunderstanding of why God chose the Jewish people in the first place. And again, those who've tasted of the old wine, their skins are stretched to capacity. You, if you poured the gospel into them, it would burst and the gospel would be lost or they just pervert it and adopt it to their Jewish way of system, which is somewhat uh, of what some Jewish people do. So again, they have no claim to, to the altar wherewith you and I eat. So go back to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll get verse number 11. It says, For the bodies of those beasts, the animals that were sacrificed, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest, for sin are burned without the camp. So he's saying, hey, those people who make this sacrifice, the sacrifice is total, it's complete, it's encompassing. That body is burned then without the camp. He's referencing the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, this animal would be brought in, it would be killed, its blood would be uh, brought into the Holy of Holies and applied to the altar there. And then that carcass would be taken without the walls of the camp and be burned and consumed. And that sacrifice was irrevocable. You couldn't take it back. The animal's dead and the body is gone. Nobody gets to eat of that body. Many of the sacrifices of the... Levitical system, the priest would eat the body, they wouldn't burn him. But the Day of Atonement, that body was very specific, had to be taken without and burned. It's very irrevocable. It's done and it's final. It's complete. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, now he's going to come to our altar. Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Here's, here's what the author is stating in verses 11 and 12. You are all in on one of two sacrificial systems. Either it's the body that's burned without the camp 
and that's your thing, and you're eating of that altar, and you're the old wineskins and the old wine, or you are all in on the fact whereof Jesus also, he was sacrificed that he might purify the people with his blood. He suffered without the gate as well. So you're all in. You cannot have both. You can't marry Judaism and Christianity. Because again, Judaism was the old shoe, right? And it served a purpose, but it got replaced. It got fulfilled. Jesus didn't abolish the law. Uh, he does use that word. Uh, Jesus didn't, didn't break the law, didn't throw away the law. He fulfilled the law. No longer is it needed because there was a better way. That was the old shoe. And Melchizedek is that other path. Remember what I'm talking about? Uh, back in Hebrews chapter 7. So listen, you're either all in on one of the two sacrificial systems. You're either trusting the works of yourself or you're trusting the works of Jesus. Now, again, this is written to Jews, so they only really, in their mind, uh, they only got two options, right? First century Jewish, you're either, you're either a believer in Jesus or you're an observer of the Old Testament. Our context might be very different, right? In the Old Testament was, was again, it was never meant to be works because it could never, sacrifice, could never satisfy. But the Jewish understanding, the reason they wouldn't give it up is because, well, my works are enough. Uh, and we have different religions today that say the same thing, right? Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, my thing, my works, this thing over here. And Jesus says, well, the author here says, if you're doing this, you have no claim for over here. You get to be all in on one of two sacrifices. And notice what the author calls the Jewish audience to do. Let us, you get to pick one or two, let us go forth thereunto, uh, therefore unto him, not the burned carcass, but unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. Now that's an important word, but we'll get to that in just a second. The idea is the author wants to help make that decision for them and with them. Hey, those who take of the sacrificial system, that's their way of atonement. It's not enough. It never was. It never will be. They have no claim to the relationship Jesus brings us to with God the Father. And let us go to him. They had a sacrifice that was irrevocable and total, though not enough. We have a sacrifice that is irrevocable and total, though it is enough. And he says, let's go over here and notice what he says to the Jews, the very end without the camp, bearing his reproach. So you and I, in our context, we're like, yep, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm going to be reproached for that. Well, that's true. But think about first century Christianity or first century Jewish Christianity. These people, wherever the author is intending to write to, uh, it seems like a general epistle, so it's not to a city. It seems to just a general epistle to the Jewish people uh, scattered abroad. And uh, there are certainly those in Jewish communities who are walking away from the sacrificial system. Their family would every day send their kids to synagogue, and they stop sending their kids to the synagogue. Every week they go and make sacrifice, and then they stop going and making sacrifice. People are going to notice that. People are going to reproach them for that. And the author here says, no, no, no. Go outside of the camp, even if you have to leave it all behind. Go outside of the camp and go to Jesus and bear his reproach. And notice the great Jewish patriarch example that he uses in verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Now, if you can remember in Hebrews chapter 11, that same thing is said of the father of the Jews, Abraham. He had no continuing city. He was in the era of the Chaldees. God called him into obscurity away from all of his family and every comfort he knew to leave, to go to a city whose builder and maker was God. And here he says, the author says to the Jews, hey, go without the camp, bear his reproach. Know that the father of your nation had no people either, had no city. He was waiting and looking for something greater to come. And again, that's the illustration that he uses to encourage these Jewish people to not be worried 
about it being accepted or rejected or reproached by those who sacrifice of the tabernacle or the temple still to this day. He says, hey, we you have a city that's yet to come. And your forefather, Abraham, was a great example of being uh, to protesting the system and going away into obscurity. And you can too, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So he says, be grateful that you have the opportunity to go without the camp. You could still be one of those people that old wine skins that the new wine couldn't be poured into because it would burst. Have a grateful heart. You get to leave the camp. Have a grateful heart. You get to go uh, to that city whose builder and maker is God. Verse number 16. Now we're going to come into the closing statements here. Um, But to do good and communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, you use that word on purpose. We're still talking about the sacrificial system. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Uh, okay, okay, okay. So what sacrifices? Look at it. See, be, be a good student of the word. Look at the verse. So we just, he just talked about how the sacrificial system doesn't exist anymore and that Jesus was the one and sin for all sacrifice and that we need to leave and go out the camp to Jesus bearing his reproach. We don't have a city, but we know that God is there. And then he says, oh, but you're supposed to sacrifice. But what sacrifices are pleasing to God? Is it the blood of bulls? Is it the day of atonement? Is it the animals? No, but to do good. So to, to, to serve, to love Jesus, to do that which is right, to be observant of the, the commands of God, and to communicate. That's a funny word because that word communicate ends up in a couple of different contexts. In this particular context, it means giving, by the way. He says to do good, so to serve, and to give, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now, we just understood that God is no longer pleased with those sacrifices, but he does say to those who have followed Jesus, the expectation is that you and I would live a life of service to him and that we would be faithful in our giving to him. And it's funny to me because people will use different passages of the New Testament or the Old Testament and say, hey, yep, you know, giving is, a, is an Old Testament expectation. Well, there are certain aspects of giving that were Old Testament expectations. But here, at the very moment, the author is saying, no, not the sacrificial system. Go to Jesus. Hey, while you go to Jesus, there are two things that God does expect for you to sacrifice. Your giving and your life of service. Those are not Old Testament expectations. Those aren't just things that the Jews had to do. There are some things, as I said, there are certain sacrifices and offerings Jews were expected to do. You and I may not be expected to do. However, giving is a biblical New Testament uh, 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 responsibility that God has put upon us. And so again, those are things that are well-pleasing to God. Uh, Now, the author is going to come in for a landing here, verses 17 and on. Let's go after it. Look, verse 17. And he already mentioned something about those who have rule over you. He's going to mention it again. He says, Obey them which have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. A couple things to note here, uh, that God has given you spiritual leadership. And again, this is where it's kind of a little bit awkward. Obviously, I'm the pastor of Faith Baptist Church. We have other pastors on our staff as well. But uh, as the pastor of Faith Baptist Church, God has given you spiritual leadership. And if a pastor's worth his weight in salt, his desire is to watch for your soul. I'll just say this. I I know for sure it's true of our other pastoral staff, but I, I can say on my own behalf, I didn't get into pastoring for the kicks of it. Right? I didn't get into pastoring because I really like telling people what to do or pointing out their faults or being like, you know what, Michael? I don't like what you're doing. I, well, you're the easy target now. I, I didn't get into pastoring for that. I got into pastoring because God gave me the heart of a shepherd to care for people. 
and to try to love them and to try to help them follow Jesus. And uh, so if you're ever like, man, why is pastor calling me when I'm not here on Sunday? He must really enjoy confrontation. No, I, I don't. I just care about your soul. I care about your family. I care about the decisions that you make and the outcomes of those decisions. I care about my own family and my own decisions. I got to pastor my own heart. You know what's funny is you are responsible for your family and you will give an account for that. There's a unique position that God said that pastors are going to give an account for all of your families. Imagine that responsibility. I don't have to imagine it. It's my literal everyday reality. But imagine caring for your own family and trying to care for that family. And you all should do these things, right? You should care for each other's families but I will actually give an account for your family. I'll give an account for your family. And I want to do that with joy. I want to stand before God and say, Lord, oh, by the grace that you gave us, it worked. And not with grief. And should I ever have to stand before God, and I will, I will stand before God, but should I ever have to stand before God and give a negative account for it? Lord, we tried and, and they didn't hear it. That is unprofitable for you. I'm responsible for how I shepherd. You're responsible for how you live and so forth. So it ultimately falls on you. But again, my heart's beat. My desire is not to lord over you. I don't, listen, I've said this so many times in the last like two months. I'm in charge of more things than I want to be in charge of. That's a fact. Like, I don't want to be in charge of this thing and that thing and that thing. And some people think, well, pastors get into it for the kicks. They really like being in charge of stuff. That is an exhausting view of pastoring. Um, I'm constantly trying to be like, hey, you want to lead this ministry? Hey, you want to lead that ministry? You want to take this? You want to do that? And thank God we have great deacons and great staff and great Sunday school teachers and leaders. That's a huge blessing. But do understand that as a pastor, my job is to watch for your souls and your job is obey them which have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Sometimes, and I've heard this every now and then, you know, that like a pastor has to submit to the people You've obviously never read that verse. The people are supposed to submit and obey their pastor. Now, so long as they're under the rulership of Jesus, I can't tell the church to do anything Jesus didn't tell you to do. But if I'm up here standing and saying, thus saith the Lord, and you're like, I don't care, I don't like that guy, I'm not obeying. Well, then you're, you're not obeying the commands and oracles of God. It's not, it's not me, it's not my personality. I didn't think he was funny. Okay, that's fine. That's not, that's not the equation. The equation is if, if the, the person who God has given oversight over you is faithfully teaching the word, then you need to obey the words he said so long as they're in the scripture. I have no authority over you in your family, in, in your everyday. I can't tell you, you can't take that job and you can't do that. That is not my authority. But the authority that I do have is simply borrowed from the scripture. And if it's in the scripture, then you don't have a choice. Okay? And I don't have a choice either. Because if it's in the scripture and I read it, I don't have a choice. I know that might be uncomfortable. It's certainly uncomfortable to say, I'm not up here advocating for pastoral authority. I'm up here just trying to be faithful to the text of the word of God, okay? And and you hired me for that. The day I stopped doing that, get another pastor, okay? And if I'm just preaching the Bible, it's your job to be like, well, it's in the Bible. What are we going to do about it? And uh, that's the heartbeat of this particular text. I didn't add this in here. It doesn't feel like it fits in Hebrews 13, but the author put it in here. So we're all going to have to get over that. So let's move on. Verse number 18 says, pray for us. Now, I don't know if the author is switching into first person again. He's done that. He did that, I think, in Hebrews 9. Um, Or if he's just saying, hey, those who have the rule over you, pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. 
Now, again, if he's talking first person, there's some things we don't understand. We don't know who. We don't know exactly what he's talking about. But if he is speaking about leadership and the people you're supposed to obey, I think what he might be saying is that we trust that we have a good conscience. Hey, we're trying to lead the church. We're just trying to do the best we can. We're trying to be honest before God. We're trying to live lives that are, are holy. We're not trying to, you know, heap to ourselves treasures or, you know, people following us. We just, we're just trying to do the best that we can. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. We're not doing this dishonestly. We're trying to do what's right, verse 19. But I beseech you the rather to do this. To do what? Well, to pray for us, that we may be restored to you the sooner. Now, he, uh, this may be first person. Uh, again, we saw, like I think it was in chapter 9, that one time that uh, he said pray for us in uh, chapter 9, that he's in bondage and so forth. Here, it seems very first person. I beseech you rather to do this, to pray for us, that we may be restored to you the sooner. So the author is expressing some desire to be brought back into the presence of these believers, which is difficult because, uh, difficult to kind of wrap our brains around as students, and let's just be students for a second. Um, the book is general, so it's not a particular place. Um, so I don't know exactly how that would fit in. Um, but I will say this, uh, the idea of the desire, the author desiring, hey, I want to be brought back to you. I had a desire to come to you, but I couldn't, and I hope to. That sounds a lot like another author of certain New Testament books. I won't say what his name is, but it, it rhymes with, with Paul. Um, there are some other things that Brother Bob and I were talking about before service that sound maybe somewhat like Paul. I'm just, I don't know. We'll just see. Look at verse 20. It says, now the God of peace, that sounds like Paul, uh, that brought again from the dead uh, the, our, our, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, uh, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in the sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he just says, hey, my heartbeat is that the God who resurrected Jesus is going to work in your heart. He's going to bring his will, and he, he's going to bring your life to a place that pleases him. Look at verse 22. I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Uh, go to Ephesians chapter 3. So the idea of writing, now I don't, I personally don't agree. I think Hebrews had a lot of words. Um, I think like when you read Obadiah, you're like, that's a book with few words. Um, but I don't think you read the book of Hebrews and think, yeah, it was pretty short. Um, it seemed longer to me. There's only one other man in the entire New Testament. Stop smirking, Jim. Um, in the entire New Testament that said of a book that he wrote it in few words. It's not hard evidence, but it's, it's evidence. Hebrews, or forgive me, Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 3. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words. Now, listen, Paul might have written the book of Ephesians, and he might have written those words that seem to match what we find in the book of Hebrews. So, I don't know. It could be. It could not be. Honestly, I'm leaning more toward Paul. So, you, those of you who prayed for me, Thank you for grace. Let's go verse number 23, back in Hebrews. He says, know ye that our brother Timothy, there's some other really super concrete evidence, that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Paul says the exact same thing in one other book as well. Hey, if Timothy can come, I'm coming too. Verse 24, salute all them that rule over you and all the saints that of Italy, uh, they of Italy salute you. So listen, was Paul in Rome at the time this book was written? Maybe he could. Yes, he was. Um, Grace be unto you all. Amen. So great book, powerful book. And it is 1225 uh, on that clock. 
That's been throwing me off the whole time. And Ms. Racino's already told me it doesn't work. We're out right on time. So great book. Take some time and reread it. And yes, maybe Paul wrote it. I'm not sure. So pray for me as I figure these things out. So let's pray.